to a really special edition of uh, the Dishcast. I have here two of the best reporters in the world, which is a real honor to have you here. It's uh, We're going to talk about the book and more, the book Peril, the last of your first-term Trump books, <laughs> assuming that that there might be a second, which I think is perfectly a possibility at this point. I have Robert Costa um, and Bob Woodward, no less, in the Dishcast studio. We're actually back in D.C. now from P-Town, and I can actually look at the faces of these two people in real time and in real flesh. So uh, thank you so much, the two of you, for thank coming. Thank you. Thank you. I want to start with a question that I do for everyone here, which is to tell me a little bit about where you're from and how you've got to be where you are. And I'm just going to say for the readers, I'm going to call Mr. Costa Robert and Mr. Woodward Bob, just so that we don't get a Bob and Bob problem. Um, let's start with Robert. Where, where were you born and grew up and how did you gravitate towards political journalism? It's great to be here. Uh, and I grew up, I was born in Richmond, Virginia, but only lived there for two years. So I don't have much of a memory of it. Grew up outside of Philadelphia in a place called Bucks County, Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia, about 45 minute drive north. And I went to a large public high school, Pensbury High School, about 4,000 students, which I think was really formative for me to go to a large public American high school. I did spend two years in middle school living in the United Kingdom. My dad's a lawyer uh, for a pharmaceutical company, now retired. Uh, we moved over there to Buckinghamshire, so I moved from Bucks County to Bucks County briefly. And I fell in love with the UK, ended up going to Notre Dame for college. Then I went to Cambridge for my master's. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm a Bucks County guy, uh, but I also have an affinity for the United Kingdom. You went to Cambridge for your master's, Cambridge University? At Queens College at Cambridge. St oh, wow. Studied Churchill. Really? I did. Well, I'll forgive you for Cambridge <laughs> but, uh, as an Ox Oxford man Indeed. myself. But uh, but now I didn't know that about you. And and were you are you an admirer of Churchill, presumably? Or it's, I actually studied. My mentor and advisor at Cambridge was a, a socialist, Andrew Gamble, and he, he's an expert on Thatcherism. And so I studied Churchill and the Anglo-American relationship uh, with a an appreciation for a lot of what he did, but also some skepticism. And uh, my, I still have a, uh, an affection for my professor, Andrew Gamble, for really teaching me how to approach a subject who's so known with, with fresh eyes. Yeah. And in, in fact, in England, of course, Churchill has a much more, people have a much more interesting relationship to him than in the United States. One of the first pieces I'm just remembering I did under Mike Kinsley at the New Republic was to go to the annual meeting of the United States Churchill Society and write up. <laughs> what I saw. And of course, I mocked it rather badly, I think. Uh, and uh, it was called, uh, the PC called Churchill Envy. Uh, <laughs> and it's really about how neoconservatives created a, a mythical Churchill um, in the way that Leo Strauss actually originally kind of made Churchill this great figure of a statesman. I grew up in my family in which Churchill was a god. I mean, my he saved the world. Um, but of course, it's more common. Did you read Boris's pretty terrible book about him? <laughs> I did. I, I I think Boris Johnson's another intriguing political figure and someone who I've tracked throughout his career. I've I met him when he was foreign secretary as a reporter, and he he interests me as a reporter in the same way Churchill does. Someone who's not really part of his party has galvanized it to be sure, but is always 
almost sneaky and scheming, but also has an intellectual base for what he's doing. And it's easy to kind of paint Boris Johnson with a broad brush, but that's not the way I would see him in any way. He's a complicated political figure, much like Churchill. Yeah, I, 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 I feel that too. I spent some time a few years ago trying to persuade Americans that he was not Trump, that he was actually much more interesting and actually doing something much more interesting in Britain than the Republican Party has managed here. Anyway, uh, Bob. Yes. Uh, most people know you, obviously, from Watergate onwards as this great journalist. But where did you, where did you grow up? And well, how well did you I was get raised in Wheaton, Illinois, 25 miles west of Chicago. And Wheaton, Illinois is the home of Wheaton College, Billy Graham territory. So I was raised in an evangelical environment. And my babysitters from Wheaton College would come and they – it's it's very interesting because they – Part of the job was to recruit people for Christ, and uh, many of them tried with me, and I can't say they succeeded, uh, but they tried hard. But it was an inv- they had to sign a pledge: no drinking, no smoking, no gambling. And to the authors of the pledge, it was inconceivable to them that college students would want to make love. So that was not <laughs> on the prohibition. So that's all they did, as <laughs> best I could tell. It, it's a failure of you're going to make a list, make it long, and <laughs> as encompassing as possible. So that introduces you to the skepticism that a child feels toward uh, religious conversion or at least it did for me. Yeah, I'm a Catholic. We're terribly nervous about conversions. <laughs> We've always been always beware of the Catholic convert because there's a certain amount of zeal and fanaticism to yes. it that that the cradle Catholics tend not to have. Um, they can, but essentially it becomes part of your environment, really. And 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 skepticism within Catholicism, of course, is much broader than it would be allowed within evangelicalism, at least within certain parts of Catholic culture. Um, So how did you get into journalism? Well, I mean, real quick, I was uh, graduated from college in 1965, uh, had to go into the Navy because I had a naval scholarship in college, and I was extended for a year, so I had a fifth year to do and I was assigned to the Pentagon to work for the Chief of Naval Operations and Communications. And I was going to go to law school, and I was 27 by the time I ended ended my Navy career. And uh, I thought, oh, let's see, law school, three years, I'll be 30. And uh, that's the end of life, you think, <laughs> at that point in your life. And so I, th- I have to do something and went to the Washington Post, just walked down. You could walk in, no security, go up and said, I'd like to work here. And they gave me a tryout, which I failed, but uh, realized I loved the work and worked at a weekly paper. And the Post hired me back uh, in September 1971. Wow. So you failed your first journalist. Yes. Test. Yeah. In a in a, it was a powerful failure, uh, as most failures are. Uh, but the editor, who then became our Watergate editor, Harry Rosenfeld, 
Um, I, he said, you just don't know how to do this, which was true. And I said, but thank you. And he said, what do you mean, thank you? And I said, well, I know this is what I want to do. And, and he helped me get a job at the weekly paper and then hired me nine months before Watergate. Nine months. Nine months. Extraordinary, really. We don't, we, we don't think of you as a young newbie just falling into this massive story and persisting with it. But that's, that's what it was. Um, I also noticed that, Bob, you've been in the Navy and you grew up in a pretty conservative uh, neighborhood. And you too, Robert, right? I mean, your, where you grew up was not exactly liberal America. It, uh, it was interesting. It's, my parents are, are kind of middle of the road, moderate Republicans. And my whole town, though, was moderate Democrat, moderate Republican. It was famous. For, it's still famous. The first congressional district was long time the eighth congressional district of Pennsylvania, a swing district, the suburbs north of Philadelphia. It had a Democratic congressman for years in Peter Kosmeyer, a Republican moderate for years in Jim Greenwood. It, it, and it's a place that had a whole swath of America. There was a steel mill that had closed for U.S. steel in the southern part of our area. And then the northern part was rural farmland, a little wealthier. So you had the whole spectrum. One thing that intrigues me about those two stories is that they're not, there aren't that many journalists today in the elite media that have similar backgrounds. Many of them are much more taken from a more narrow elite. That's partly because the society has shifted and the, 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 the turn towards educative cognitive elites has become quite narrow. Um, but when you dealt with politics as journalists, those values that you grew up with must still be in your head, right? I mean, at some extent. And so you have an idea who you're really trying to write for? Uh, that's such a great question. And I mean, you try to find out what happened. And I don't think you can become overly involved in trying to think about who you're writing for. You are writing what we always called the best obtainable version of the truth. But my background is like Robert's. My father was a Republican judge in Illinois. And when I got involved in the Watergate story, you know, that was not happy times in really, Republican was land in, in DuPage County. And uh, he just essentially said, I hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> A lot of people felt that way, right? Including, yes, yeah, including me. <laughs> yes, yeah. right. Yes. Um, so let's get to the book because, um, I mean, one of the things I feel reading both of you actually, just as a complete person, is that you are trying to find the what I would call the uh, the regular reader, the general reader, the public. It doesn't feel to me when you write either of you that you're trying to. Skewer it to one audience to another, but that notion of a general reader must be must be influenced by the people you grew up, your families, and, and that neighborhood, as well as the people you've come to know, obviously. But anyway, that's well. I just would just say to that. I really do think a lot about my high school, uh -huh. and I so many people who I grew up with just don't read the mainstream political news. And so I do think at times I'm not writing for any audience, but I'm hoping that it breaks through with people who just want to learn what's going on to figure out what happened, to break through with people who are having their everyday lives. Let me ask you, for me, there were two questions, really the deep questions that came out from reading your book. And the one which I'm still grappling with, a lot of people are grappling with, how 
serious, really serious, was this attempt to remain in power, to, uh, to, to, to kind of try and rig or affect the process both before and after the election so that the Biden victory would not be legitimate. Now, there is a debate about this. Well, I, I think there's less and less a debate. I think there's so much evidence in this Eastman memo uh, where, it, I mean, as one of your commentaries, you said this is an extraordinary document, and it is. It's a coup plan, really. Uh, and so if you trace Trump and the reactions to Trump, uh, not just by General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but by Pence, his vice president, and uh, in the end, Pence stood his ground and certified the election for Biden, but it was up and down, uncertain. It's quite a road that Pence walked, and he wanted to accommodate Trump at many points. And so uh, I don't think there's—if you look at the profile of Trump in the book, it is— uh, angry, determined man. I mean, it, before the election, he was talking about repeatedly the China virus, just attacking China, saying things like tweeting, millions of foreign ballots are going to come in to the United States, uh, saying very clearly that if he didn't win the election, it would mean it was rigged, it was stolen. So he's laying the groundwork of doubt, and then you find uh, the level of effort. I, At least this year, I'm not sure he's done much more other than try to seed and pour water and gasoline simultaneously on that seed of this was a stolen election, and we found no evidence at all that it was a stolen election and found these memos that Giuliani wrote to uh, Lindsey Graham and that this Eastman lawyer, what was he, a, a clerk for Clarence, uh, Clarence Thomas? Thomas. Yeah. I mean, this what you really see when you step back is as a daily reporter for years at the Post, I'm always chasing the ball and where it's going. Where is the news going? The The real reporting reward, if you can call it that, of doing this book with Bob Woodward, is that we went back and back to chase the ball that had already gone. January 6th, the insurrection. As everyone moved forward, we just stayed and dug and dug. And two main conclusions that were very unsettling became quite apparent to us over the course of nine or 10 months of reporting this out. One, and, and Woodward can get into this more, is that there was a real national security emergency sparked by the domestic crisis in the United States. And number two, to answer your question specifically, the effort to overturn this election was very real and, and far more coordinated than at first reported. And that's not a criticism of early reporting. We've had the luxury of time to go back. And like everyone, we read the stories about Trump on January 6th passively watching television coverage of the insurrection. And it seemed at first that Trump was a passive figure. But as we reported this out, 
and sat down with people. Woodward's method is brilliant to just sit down with people for hours, transcribe the interviews, think it through. It became so apparent based on the reporting, and this is to me the red flag for democracy, that Trump was anything but passive. He was driving this at the top, and it's the days before the insurrection that really show you how he became fully comfortable with power. And Woodward and I have talked about this. When he wrote Fear and Rage, Trump was still ambling around, understanding the presidency. By the end, he knew how to pull the levers of power. And you see him across the board having different pressure points on the Department of Justice, on individual lawmakers who he wants to buy in, giving Mike Lee of Utah, the conservative lawyer, the Eastman memo, trying to get him to come in pressuring Vice President Pence, pressuring individual lawmakers. He, Trump was relentless. He was coordinated. He was talking to many people. This was memorialized in writing with the memo. But his fingerprints were on everything. And that Trump we saw on the 6th was a Trump watching the culminating moment of something he had kicked into motion. And it was about kicking the election to the House. It was about getting the House Republicans to reelect him inside the House of Representatives. And until the very end, he was doing everything possible. And we shouldn't forget what we've reported and what happened. Even after his one-on-one -on -one meeting with Pence on January 5th, where Pence says, I'm not going to do this, they resist the temptation of power. Trump then issues a statement in Pence's name, again pushing him. And there's a scene in our book where Giuliani, through his advisor, Boris Epstein, is trying to come over to talk to Pence one more time at midnight at the vice president's residence. This was so real and so dark of a story. And it's threatening. It's, it's, it's not just uh, passive on Trump's part. And we, we see that uh, amplified now this year when somebody who opposes him, even the other day we were saying, uh, George Kennan's famous, uh, the treacherous curtain of deference when you get around presidents. And for Trump, it's really uh, the iron curtain of obedience. He demands obedience. If you don't give it and you're in the Republican Party and an, elect uh, an elected official, you are going to get primaried. You are going to get this kind of treatment. Now, the second element here and the, the real surprise for us was the national security crisis. Mm -hmm. And this national security crisis is so real that General Milley was in a position, and we wrote about this in detail, phone calls to his Chinese counterpart, calling in the people from the war room in the Pentagon and going around the room and say, you will not take orders from the White House or Trump or anybody without including me. Got it? Got it? Yes, sir. Got it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I was... You, Robert and I were talking this morning about something we, I'd never mentioned. When I was in the Navy, uh, it's 1969, the height of the Vietnam War. I'm on a destroyer, uh, large destroyer, guided missile frigate called the USS Fox. And it's a Sunday afternoon, and I'm officer of the deck. I'm a lieutenant communications officer and the skipper is trying to train me to be a naval officer. So I'm acting captain, effectively. And 
The ship is going along. This is off the coast of Vietnam. We are a radar picket ship. It is, there's lots of intelligence that the v- Vietnamese will attack American destroyers with cruise missiles, with small boats. So it's kind of a dicey moment. And one of the lookouts shouts out, object dead ahead. And I get my binoculars like, you know, like in the movies, <laughs> but this really happens. And you look, and it's a floating mine. And the lookouts, that floating mine, dead ahead, sir. And so I have to act in half a second. And I say, right, full emergency rudder. That's extremists. And the ship's going about 25 knots. It's a big ship. And it just keep, it looks like it's going to capsize. And we're going. And I go to the internal microphone on the ship, one MC, it's called Captain to the Bridge, Captain to the Bridge. And he comes running up. I guess we, I'm not going to quote him, but he says, What the F are you doing? And I said, Captain, there is a floating mine out there. And we get the Marines and the Marines aboard because we had nuclear weapons. We had all kinds of secret operations. And the Marines shoot at the mine that's floating. And, of course, you wonder, are there other mines around you don't see? And one of them hits it and it explodes. And the captain looks at me and says, I guess you were right. And you never get an apology from the captain of a Navy vessel. That locked in my head that moment of danger. Now, that's on a Richter scale from zero to ten, not even a one. General Milley was confronted four days before the election with intelligence, as he's testified under oath, abundant intelligence that the Chinese thought were going to attack them. This is the worst moment for a military man. Knife edge, my God, uh, what happens in war often or before war is the first move to take advantage, other words, Pearl Harbor. And he, he's, if, if I was this officer on the deck at this moment, I can't, I, I can tell you, I realized that there are 300 men, no women at this point, on this ship. I have to protect the ship. Millie has to protect the country. And it reminds me of that phrase in the book, Millie says privately, the absolute darkest moment of theoretical possibility. That's what Millie was confronting with Trump's unraveling conduct, China in a hair-trigger environment in the South China Sea. And it was just stunning for us as reporters when we learn more about this to realize we don't understand sometimes the national security consequences of what a president does. And what happened two days after the the, uh, election, uh, I'm sorry, uh, January 6th, the insurrection. And uh, can we make that insurrection rather than what I said? (laughs) Uh, And uh, this is a moment of of danger itself. So two days after, Milley gets uh, intelligence that the Chinese think the United States is collapsing. So he then calls this five-year relationship, top-secret channel, people up 
in the upper ranks knew about it, but he was the one who had the channel to the head of the Chinese military. And uh, he says, no, no, we're not going to collapse. And, uh, you know, calm down. And then in the middle of the who calls? Speaker Pelosi. But to me, the the question that remains after the Milley, the Milley testimony has gotten so much attention and scrutiny. But the real question is, suppose Milley hadn't acted in, to de-escalate the situation. What could the insurrection have prompted abroad, whether it was from China, Iran, Russia? It was a very, uh, a very chaotic environment. Wouldn't and it? all those countries, China, Russia, Iran, were on military alert. And military alert is where you're listening, looking at everything, sending your planes, sending your ships. It's the most dangerous possible time. And then Pelosi calls, and we have the transcript of that extraordinary moment in American history, saying to Milley, you know he's crazy, Trump is crazy. I need some guarantees that he won't unleash nuclear weapons. And Milley says, calm, calm down, we have procedures. And then Milley realizes the commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief. He can release nuclear weapons on his own. And there's that dramatic moment of calling in the war room. That's what still faces this country. If Trump's elected again, or if someone with his uh, persona is elected into that office, there is no procedure that holds back a commander-in-chief. People can talk about procedures, but they're not laws. The Constitution says the president's commander-in-chief. So if he's back there and he wants to launch a strike, nuclear weapons, by law, he can. What was the basis of the view of the Chinese before the election that we could go to war? Was it an inference that this man is so crazy that he if he loses we might be he might want a massive distraction some military distraction or was there actual viable intelligence that the chinese had picked up that might have indicated that or was it was it an inference from the political situation and their analysis of who trump was or was there actually something factual i think it's it's all of the above and under oath 2 weeks ago milley laid it out and said there was intelligence. There was an abundance. It wasn't just one thing, an abundance of intelligence. We don't know what that was, and we will find out. And it's obviously all of this is in the arena of controversy. Uh, welcome to American politics, but welcome to not the theorizing of national security policy, but the reality of you get that intelligence. You have the Chinese, you know, this. Well, there's that line that Millie says in the book, the Chinese don't understand us and we don't understand the Chinese. That, In part, it's an intelligence that Millie has testified under oath was very real, which we don't know in terms of how much does the U.S. intelligence and security community reach into the Chinese government. We don't have full eyes into what that intelligence mm -hmm. actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do know that the reports in Asian media that Trump had a wag-the-dog inclination, that Trump was portrayed as this kind of mad president. And then you, you couple that with the rhetoric Trump was using at, toward the end of the campaign. It could lead to miscommunication, which Milley and other military leaders really fear is the seed of war. And we also paint a picture in the booklet, let, let's not forget, 
U.S. and Chinese ships are constantly dodging each other in the South China Sea. It's not an active war situation, but it's an active near hostile situation. I'm going to press you on the point again. I have no doubt in my mind that Trump intended to do this, this hoping he would get away with it, that thought this was every possible well, it. My the the attempt to uh, prevent the take the 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 the, the Biden presidency. I mean, yes, I think that's true. But but, but he's not that smart about it. So I, what the thing I wanted to press you on was it was uh, this. He would need slates of electors from the states. He didn't have them. He would require state legislators and, to some extent, secretaries of state in some of these uh, states to, to 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 hold an audit or to to hold a to call a pause on or something like that. He didn't get that. You're right, and, you're and that's what I meant by the system not completely capitulating to him. Now the question then becomes: He seems subsequently to have realized this and have gone around and attempt to me- mend those. I mean, places. You, you have to follow what Steve Bannon is doing with his own podcast right yes. now. I mean, he is urging people in municipal levels, state levels, uh, to run county levels to run for election positions. They're not going to be caught flat-footed again. Your point is right. Our reporting shows at the end, Trump was disorganized. He was veering from advisor to advisor, Sidney Powell, Giuliani, finally John Eastman. But toward the end, he starts to get clarity that you do need alternate slates of electors. And what the Eastman memo wanted to do is create space for these electors to come into the state legislatures. At the time, there were sporadic groups informally on social media somehow declaring themselves to be electors. But of course, they weren't electors that were alternate because they weren't recognized by state legislatures. But ever since January 6th and after January 20th, the Trump group in the Republican Party has been more active than any other inside the GOP to make sure come 2022, but especially come 2024, Trump allies are ensconced in election positions that have power. So if they do want to send an alternate slate, it's not going to be an 11th hour gambit. Or maybe... He will win the nomination. Maybe he will win the presidency. Now, I was digging around, and and uh, on May 2nd, 2016, uh, you uh, wrote the cover story for New York Magazine. And this, right at this time, Robert Costa and I are interviewing Trump in his hotel because Costa came to me and said, People are not taking him seriously. We should go talk to him about what you do as president. We had a 90-minute interview. Well, and that's what the thing that Woodward told me as we walked in is we got to ask him about power. How is he going to use power? And one of the quotes from that interview still gives me a chill to this day. He Trump looked at both of us as we sat in this unfinished hotel, and Woodward says, well, what's power to you? And Trump goes, I don't even want to say it. And we say, well, tell us. What is real power? And he goes, real power is M dash. I don't even want to say the word. Real power is fear. And that led to Woodward's first book title. But I still remember Trump saying that because to your point, Andrew, I've covered Trump for 10 years. I covered him when he was a birther. I've interviewed him dozens and dozens of times. Because of his limited phrases at times, his personality, it's very easy to say, And a lot of people who've worked for him have said he's childlike. But when I heard him say that to us in that room in March 31st, 2016, what flashed across his eyes was anything but a child. Mm -hmm. He is fully an adult 
And as disorganized and narcissistic and slapshot as he can be at times, he is very aware of what he's doing in some in some ways. Yes, and in that, I mean, this is quite a, a convergence in your cover story in New York Magazine. You talk about the Trump threat in terms of our liberal democracy and constitutional order. Trump is an extinction level event. In other words, he's like the end. I mean, here well, that, you are saying that, and then you say, I'm sorry to bring up your no, old please, words. No, flattering. Fear is always the would-be tyrant's greatest ally. And at this time, we're talking, Trump is, you know, what's but you were, power? A- Andrew was ahead of us because I, I only, it has settled into me after working on this book with Woodward is that I'm not really a political reporter anymore. I'm a reporter, but we're really covering the story of democracy right now. It's not, when I started out as a political reporter, it was what are the Republicans doing? What are the Democrats doing? And when you sit down with people who are in the room with Trump, in the room at the highest levels of the Republican Party, it's hard to have that approach as a reporter because you really, you recognize that those fights are happening at one level, but it's really about democracy now. Do people believe in it or not? And how do they engage with it? And are the institutions that we have in place up to coping with somebody like Trump? Look at the January 6th commission in the House. And you know, they have subpoena power. They, uh, you know, how, how are they, are they set up to really get to the bottom, not just of January 6th, not just of democracy in peril, not just the national security crisis, not just the Trump handling of the virus. There's still a story there. I did it in my my second book, and people wanted to focus on me. Focus on Trump, because he's the one who was the decision maker. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Now, do we have a way of finding out what we need to know as a democracy about this person who was president for four years. Well, it, people, when we talk to people who are in Congress, one of the big takeaways is Congress does, has, has been diminished. I mean, look at the people on the Trump side just deflect subpoenas, no engagement. You really wonder what is the power of Congress now to investigate uh, and to have these kind of hearings. You don't see participation in Congress. The committee has to wonder, is it going to really try to hold people in civil and criminal contempt? But there's a real fear on the Democratic side. If, the, if you start putting people in jail, if the House Republicans take over, who knows what that looks like? And I'm not sure they're going to... That is re- the end of liberal democracy. Just to be, be very clear about it, that is the fundamental breakdown of the system. Yeah, but but the the real end of liberal democracy or the democracy as we know it is a vacuum of information about what occurred. And we found in working on this and having that luxury of time and uh, leaving our enterprise in this book with uh, immense respect for the daily reporters at the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the network, CNN in particular, digging into these things. But they're always, as Robert says, you know, what's the story that I can have by five o'clock today? Well, that cripples you 
as somebody really in the quest for what happened. I mean, Robert here, in the course of what we're doing, did one eight-hour interview. <laughs> have you ever interviewed anyone for eight hours? I can't say I have. Yeah, I have over time, but he did it, it's it continuously. Almost, it's amazing when you sit down with someone who was a, uh, a participant at the closest level, and it's deep background, so you don't discuss who it is. But it's almost like when you ask someone about their family, if I asked you about your father, you have a stock answer maybe. Maybe even you would keep to that stock answer for 30 minutes. But after three hours, five hours, eight hours, and I come back to your father, and I, there are a couple people, including this person, who you interview, and they almost start to get emotional and, and cry because of what they witnessed, what they saw, what they did not do. And you really recognize that people slowly are aware of the stakes for liberal democracy and their own role in it, and that this isn't a game. A lot of people enter this as kind of the political game. It's not a game. It's very serious. And it, it, it was fascinating to watch people and their talking points fall away hour after hour. The, the talking points and the, the pat answer will evaporate in long interviews, getting back, you know, what really happened? And you find those people, I mean, at, at all levels, it's just a stunning experience. Names of people you know very well, cabinet officers, and then people you've never heard of who were there and pushing things around, paper, keeping documents, and so forth. So we, we have to confront this as a journalistic profession. Do we have, are we equipped to do the hard target reporting that's required now? And we better be up to that task. And it, it's a little painful road to walk of self-examination that the habits of journalism, as important and at times glorious they can be, are something we better worry about and tune up and refine. Obviously, one factor in that is social media, which didn't exist in Watergate, which primes people to want to know what happened 10 minutes ago. Uh, and Trump, again, in a way that was underestimated, knew how that works, that Twitter is an agent of mass distraction. And if you can keep it, if you can keep people distracted, not only distracted in a way that their emotions are engaged, they're not going to take the long view. They can't see beneath the surface. They are primed for instant judgment and instant analysis. And not only that, but instant analysis by members of two separate tribes who are constantly attempting to spin it in a way. So the, the mind of the citizen is constantly fried and constantly looking at this uh, in a ways that make exactly those practices of a little democracy, which is about the citizens as much as the journalists, actually focusing and reeling. I found the last uh, under Trump, I found, my, I mean, I kept writing the same thing. I mean, variations of the same thing. This is incredibly dangerous. Listen Extinction to what he's saying. Extinction level event. I mean, that's 
That's, you know, end of civilization, end of the world talk. Well, I wouldn't say that because it was (laughs) an extension level event for liberal democracy and constitution. You can have a democracy that's not liberal in any way. You can Mm -hmm. have an Orban. You can have a, a way in which the opposition is basically neutered. You can have... The forms of democracy, this is what we're, we're we can have the, the form of democracy without the core element of it, in which one person's decisions really are all that really matter. Um, that was my concern. And also that the principle of being able to exchange ideas fully, to consider what's going on well, with all of that, he also, as a Twitter user, was brilliant. Now, let me get back to, well, we want to address that, rather? No, I just think your point is an important one. I mean, you began as a, and still are, a magazine, right? You write essays in addition to books, and this is a long-form project, this book. And what I took away from the book is how much chronology matters to get the full understanding. Yeah. And social media removes the chronological yes. depth that yes. you get from reading a magazine story or a book. And it's not just a flurry of anecdotes that are sprayed on the wall of your Facebook account or your Twitter. And to have reading in depth for a civic reason, just for illiteracy, is key for liberal democracy. I'm not here to advocate for anything, but just if I could advocate for anything, it'd be reading more. I mean, people who've actually read the book or read your newsletter or your magazine pieces in depth, they come away with a different understanding than just seeing the headline. And that's even the case with this book. Sometimes headlines would capture uh, a nugget from the book without even understanding the context. And that's what my fear is as a reporter. We're losing the context for almost everything. And in the context is the experience that the key players had. And it evolves over a year, two years, and without belaboring this, the origin for Mark Esper, who was Secretary of Defense, and General Milley, and they were very close. They'd been Secretary of the Army and uh, head of the Army for the military for when they got the top jobs in the Pentagon appointed by Trump. And they realized that Trump wants to bring And after the Black Lives Matter uh, disturbances and the violence and the murder and the, I mean, the awfulness of all of that, Trump wants to bring in combat troops from the 82nd Airborne to Washington. They know, Esper and Milley know, that this is a prescription for violence and a 1968-style violence, and they, they, as they say, they checkmated him, stopped him from doing it in his own interest, and having uh, combat troops in Washington, D.C., in this era of all the polarization we're talking about, Black Lives Matter protests, uh, a combat-trained 82nd Airborne, I mean, you uh, they were horrified, and they had to. St- so this and how close lays- they came. I mean, it's another almost underreported moment. Trump had the 82nd Airborne over at Andrews Air Force Base, ready to come into D.C. This is the most lethal force in the U.S. military. Steps away from coming into the streets of Washington to clash with people protesting for racial justice, it, and it was just a few people holding Trump back. He wanted it. 
He wanted it. He, he wanted his own Tiananmen Square. <laughs> he admired the Tiananmen. I mean, exactly. what he said about that moment was struck me as incredibly revealing about this man. Yes. That, that again, you can treat him as a joke or you can take him at his word. And these people do tell well, you what you they And you say both. You say take him <gasps> at his word and that there's a farcical side to this. And there is a farcical side. But it's not comic. It is... Uh, and we found from our reporting the concentration of power in the president is off the charts. There's nothing like it in uh, any world. Not only is he commander-in-chief, but he commands the bully pulpit. He commands the party. Uh, and he – What I mean, look at the coverage, the daily coverage of Trump. Every, you know, what did he say? What did he do? What does it mean? What's uh, – and this – guy was leader and he as you've said Robert he got in four years in the presidency he got trained in the levers of real power in the presidency and he of course I mean I also come from this from a from background in political philosophy and one of the subjects that I studied was tyranny and how the ancient writers thought about it uh, mm -hmm. how Shakespeare analyzed it. Uh, and there are character traits. Each one, each tyrant is unique. And part of tyranny is ridiculousness too. What is more ridiculous when we look at it than Hitler at this point? If you, if you walk down the street looking at that, you would think, what an absurd outfit. What is he wearing with that suit? I mean, he'd look silly. But that's part of the attraction is that you're, pre you're prepared to be in awe of this person. And the the character traits that drive a tyrannical person are, are, are deep in each, in each instant and different in each instance. But he's a real one, it seems to me. He's a real one. He's never, ever, ever accepted the legitimacy of equals. He has never, never, ever accepted the possibility of a non-zero-sum engagement in which two sides can win. It always has to be his domination. Uh, this is a form of, I would think if you met someone like that in your everyday life, you'd think you would inch your way out of the room and try and stay away from this person. Uh, it's a form of mental illness. And yet it's a mental illness that does not mean that you're irrational. It's, it's, a, it's a complex that drives you to do very rational things, but in ways that are incredibly dangerous to others. And people studied his psychiatry. We have a whole chapter in the book with Paul Ryan yeah. studying narcissistic He's personality. He's the Speaker of the House. <laughs> I mean, at, at this point, when Trump comes in and what and go. I mean, he realizes he studies these articles given to him by a donor. Don't humiliate this person in public. But to your point about his personality. He's got a narcissistic personality disorder. In the eyes now, of Ryan. We, we don't. We're not know, doctors. We're not that. Uh, but you're humans and I'm a human being and I've noticed people who are crazy. He's absolutely out of his mind in some respects and yet coolly rational in others. This, this isn't in the book, but one scene that I always stick with covering Trump is in 2015. I'm with him backstage, one of the only reporters traveling with him at that time with Corey Lewandowski and Hope Hicks, and it's his first rally in Arizona. And he's seeing this crowd, and the crowd's okay, enthusiastic. And then he starts going into build the wall, and the crowd, for the first time, roars. And he looks back at Lewandowski and Hicks, who are standing next to me, and he gives them this quick grin. 
and he goes right back to the wall. We're going to build it even higher. Build the wall. And the crowd gets whipped into a frenzy. And that smile of Trump back at Corey and Hope always stands with me Mm. that he is, some say it's a marketer, some say it's a demagogue, whatever it is, he's listening to the crowd and reacting to the crowd and going right back to the wound. And he has a product that will sell. And the product is himself. And now, grievance. let's, I mean, what we try to do as reporters, and uh, I just want to read this. This is um, um, one week after the election, November 3rd. Uh, what has happened is Trump has fired the Secretary of Defense and installed somebody who he thinks will do his bidding. And it's Gina Haspel, who's somebody we do not hear from very often. She's the CIA director. And she says this idea of firing uh, Esper, who was a, a West Point classmate of Pompeo's. And, and she says the following, yesterday was appalling. We are on the way to a right-wing coup. The whole thing is insanity. He is acting out like a six-year-old with the tantrum, end quote. Now, that is some a, a woman 35 years in the CIA, trained as a case officer by all accounts an aggressive, some think overly aggressive uh, case officer, but somebody who was schooled in assessing instability. And this is her assessment, a a right-wing coup, a six-year-old with a tantrum. And uh, that lives with us. Again, it's like something we talk about a lot. The CIA director, nonpartisan, believed this country was on the brink of a possible right-wing coup during the transition. And that, to your point, Andrew, even if Trump himself is not coordinating this in an explicit or sometimes organized fashion, there's a rolling nature to it and him installing his own people into these positions. And he's ready for the possibility of amassing even more power. Now, let me get to the obvious consequence of this, that what you've described, what your three books show chronologically, and I, I would urge people to sit down and read them in order, because I agree with you entirely that chronology is everything. You, you, his, his capacity is to get you distracted for 10 seconds. Your job is to sit down and see what he's really doing underneath. This has been demonstrated. It is not as if all these acts are a mystery. You guys, other people have detailed it. Some of it has been in front of our very eyes. That this man nearly took this country's entire constitution down. This man is irrational, dangerous, angry, uh, a six-year-old having a tantrum. And yet today in the United States, one of the two major parties is still in his thrall. It does not seem that there has been no moment at which this grip has weakened, even January 6th, even an actual attempt to use violence. And those scenes that you describe of him opening the door... So you can hear the mob. That is, that is the scene of the book to me. I agree. I That's agree. your favorite scene. I mean, Re- favorite is strange it's word. This beaut- it's this absolutely vivid picture of a man using a mob to threaten the Constitution. And Woodward would, would often say to me when he was writing The Final Days, 
with about Carl Bernstein Nixon. about Nixon, that Nixon would be talking to the pictures on the wall and that Trump isn't talking to the pictures in the final days. He's talking to the mob. And the thing I would hear from sources is that the people inside the Oval Office on the night of January 5th, 2021 are shivering, 31 degrees, shivering, saying, Mr. President, can we please close the door? No. Keep it open. I want to hear my people. They have courage. They are the ones who fight. This is the eve of the insurrection. He has the door open to freezing weather so he can listen to the mob outside. Not only that, but if he were a regular politician, he would subsequently, if he wanted to come back, be laying out a program or hitting these themes. He's, he's had one theme, yeah. which is they stole the election from me. And he's, despite a simply mountain of evidence, he is absolutely determined that that be the first thing, that the next election is about that. Uh, in other words, his narcissism is so great, he has lost any idea of what he might actually accomplish. But here's what I want to get to again. So how do you explain so many people in this country, well, maybe 30 to 40% of them, are behind this manic, crazy tyrant okay, but to the th nth degree. So yes. what, how do you explain that? Okay, but see, what uh, we have uh, limited capacity. Uh, we're reporters. And what uh, I think we can't do is be angry about people who disagree with us. I think the I'm idea- ask, I'm not asking for you to be angry. I'm asking no, you to understand it No, no, but so many people it. are angry. Right. And anger doesn't work. You know, the great British uh, novelist, Graham Greene, always said, don't despise your enemies. Don't despise the people on the other side. They have a case. now. That doesn't mean you accept it, but you want to understand it. And I think the role for us is to understand and explain as best we can through the behavior, through the behavior of Trump and these people who support him. And when he makes claims like the stolen election, find documentation from his closest supporters in the Senate. Senator Lee, Senator Graham. I mean, they, they, these are diehard Trump people. And they investigate independently and they say, it's just not there. It's, it's zero. And that was so important that we reported on Republicans realizing Trump allies, not never Trumpers, Mike Lee and Lindsey Graham, two of the top allies for the Trump, proving the election was fair. They did not find evidence of fraud. It's not Woodward and Costa saying it. It's through our reporting. His own attorney general, which is the man who owed everything to Trump. And like Trump, as and, we show, was his political advisor. And, was, and is a tribalist. I mean, if, in many ways, a tribal a Bill Barr. Yeah. yeah, Bill Barr. Well, he, he's, he's riding both horses, and we explain that. I mean, he's criticizing Trump, but he's, uh, he also believes... Trump should be reelected in 2020, and he supports that. And he's ducking and weaving at the same time. He's making some very powerful points. But I'm, I, I'm sorry, I want to go back to the national security theme because that's what will 
it, it's uh, not the tyranny in the political process, though that's great danger and something to worry about. It's, it's that capacity, and we, we have scenes where they're meeting about striking Iran, and Trump is just, oh, that's, let's, let's strike Iran. It's a good idea. And the military people are trying to say, no, you strike and you start a war. And Gina Haspel, again, comes in and says, hey, uh, look, we're going to lash out at Iran for his ego? Is this we, what we are going to do is bring this country into a war, not the verge of war, but into a war for his ego? That's the danger. And that was always the missing piece, because when you read in Trump, when you read Plato and Aristotle, when you read the great theorists of tyranny, the one thing they always say is that the country will go to war. That that is a very, very classic trait of the time, if only just to defend his own domestic position as a way to rally the country, as a way to declare emergency in order there to be fear. Uh, and yet Trump for so long didn't seem interested in that. And he from, is a non-interventionist in many is. respects. But he could tumble into war with some kind of rash decision, as our book shows. It's not about him seeking war to, uh, to, to underscore his power. This is someone who could trigger war by just saying, I love that idea of attacking Iran. And the, the, uh, again, General Milley is in this position of making this very important assessment, is that if you strike, you start a war quite possibly, almost certainly. And the environment we're in geopolitically and strategically with Russia, with Iran, with China, you know, these are powerful military forces. And the the games that are being played and the brinksmanship, uh, I mean, it's it really is on the brink of our national security. This is not some uh, excursion in, I'm sorry, to Afghanistan or Yemen. This is, and as Milley says, we quote him in our book saying, his job is to prevent great power war because great power war is that, if I can use your phrase, an extinction <laughs> level event. <laughs> yes, I can see that. To, to put someone in power with that level of responsibility to be essentially incapable of acting with responsibility. I mean, that's the theme. Trump never takes responsibility for anything. In this way, he's kind of a modern person. Uh, he has never, ever worried about the collateral damage, what happens to other people in his struggle. They are completely irrelevant. Even the banks that were tied to him you know, in, in, with the Taj Mahal casino, in the end, he did win because he made them so indebted to him, they needed him to survive or lose even more. But did he spend a second thinking of anyone else? No. Any of these consequences? No. It was just, I need to do this for me. If I were not to do this now, I would be humiliated. Therefore, I will do it regardless of the consequences. I just keep thinking about how so many people, that when I sit down with Democrats for this book, they have a moral righteousness in response to Trump by saying they believe what Trump has done is a moral outrage. 
and they are very angry about it. But I just keep thinking back to an interview I did with Trump the day after the Access Hollywood tape broke. Mm. I knew he was broke on a Friday. My colleague David Farenthal broke it on a Friday afternoon. And by that night, everyone believes Trump may drop out of the race. I called Trump on Saturday morning the day after. I'm in the newsroom. I just had a sense he was probably home watching TV. Maybe Melania wasn't around because of the Access Hollywood tape. So I call him. And he wasn't in great spirits with me because he didn't like a previous interview I had done with him the month prior about pressing him on whether he's still a birther and he wouldn't give an answer. So I call him. I say, Mr. Trump, what do you want? And I say, on the record, let's have an interview. Okay, let's talk. It was his first interview after Access Hollywood. And I said, everyone wants you to leave this race. Reince Priebus, others are so nervous. People are walking away from your campaign. Are you going to quit he said, what are you talking about? I will never withdraw. I will never quit. And I will remember this for the rest of my life. He said to me, to me, he said, you don't understand life. You don't understand. This is nothing. This is nothing. I've been through everything. I actually put in the story, Trump told the reporter, you don't understand life. But my takeaway from that interview sticks with me now and that so much of the reaction to Trump and his conduct is, oh, how can this be? Let us scold it. Let us call it out. He doesn't care. He never processes it that way. And so this idea that you can kind of cajole him or push him with any kind of moral strain is just a false notion. And I've seen it up close in these interviews. And he, uh, last year, I spent 10 hours interviewing him during 10 hours. And he was able to sit for 10 hours with you? Well, no, it was 18 separate interviews. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was on the say, phone or in person in the Oval Office. And uh, one of the things he said about the virus, which I thought was so important, said, oh, I always downplay it because I don't want to panic people. And my wife, Elsa Walsh, who's a student of history and it, it was helping uh, on this book that became Rage, she said, you've got to read Franklin Roosevelt's Fireside Chats and see how he dealt with crisis. And so we dug him out, and there's Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor, one of the most damaging historical events. And Roosevelt goes on the air, and Fireside Chat that he'd worked out himself and he said, you know, we are in a fight for our survival and I'm counting on you Americans to, because this is what Americans do, they rise to the moment and factory workers are gonna have to work night and day, the military's gonna have to do this and he just lays out a parade of necessary actions by Americans to save America. And we went through that and I thought, my, that's it. That's it. You not only have to understand yourself, you need to understand the people you're leading. And the people Trump was leading, they're the same people that Franklin Roosevelt was leading. And history shows Time and time again, when people come out of the presidency, go on television or a fireside chat, and they say, you know, I have really bad news. We're in a pinch. And 
We're going to get out of it, not because of me, but because of you. We are counting on you to make this effort, and I know you will. And Roosevelt was so successful with these fireside chats, his aides would say, when something would come up, you got to do a fireside chat. And he'd say, no, I have to limit my effort here because it would take, he would do it himself. He would take days to prepare. And he said, I can't have a fireside chat every week. I have to, to borrow a phrase, do it in a more moment of peril when there is real obligation on the leadership of the country and the people of the country. And so the, the catastrophe, one of the catastrophes of Trump, he doesn't understand America. And that failure to understand that removes him from that opportunity of what we call inspiring leadership. Robert, I immediately thought of Churchill's first speech to the House of Commons upon assuming the prime ministership, which when you read an unbelievably bleak speech, it is, we are screwed, <laughs> but we will fight them. And I'm, you will do it. And please, we're all in this together. And uh, again, you're right. And the British, similarly, they rose to that occasion. Um, obviously, in an extraordinary People way. do. Families do. Individuals do. I mean, no. But this is why Trump seems to me, and the whole Trumpism, I alone can fix it. This is a direct attack on self-government. It is I take from you all those responsibilities, and it's me that will do everything. It's and I can do anything. And that's that's what that's what's so not American about this. Like, how did, for example, the Republican Party that has said done nothing for most of my adult lifetime but talk about self-government become the vehicle for its abolition? How do you explain that, Robert? Well, one of the things I'm watching, whether it's for the Republican race for 2024 or even for the Democratic Party's future, who's going to galvanize the country along those themes of liberal democracy? beyond the partisanship, who's going to speak out and articulate that there is a crisis of democracy afoot and who's going to address it? Who, what's their solution for it? We're not here as reporters to take a side, but I'm definitely watching and listening. Who's speaking to some of these deeper themes? And for the Republican Party, I've covered it in depth for over a decade. And it comes back to your question, Andrew, about how do these people stay with Trump? I covered the beginning of the Tea Party movement and so much of what's happened, and I would argue as a reporter, both parties, is a response to the economic crisis. And it's it's fed on the Republican side, support for ideas like birtherism and the rise of racism in that respect, this grievance toward the establishment, whether it's economic or political. And on the left, the crisis in 2008 really fed the rise of someone like Bernie Sanders from the fringe to be seen as someone offering a new slate of ideas for the left. And we see that, of course, in the UK as well. And long story short, my conclusion as a reporter, which is still evolving, is that the grievances from that period are still activating 
our politics. And some people like Trump have taken different strands and woven them together into a, a new political consensus, at least within the Republican Party. And I also see in the Republican Party a sclerotic approach to policy that I, I just remember so vividly covering Mitt Romney's defeat. I was in Boston when he lost, and I was talking to donors and Romney advisors in that ballroom up in Boston. And there was a real sense in that room in November of 2012 that it was over for the Republican Party, that they could not win the working class again in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and that the Romney-Ryan message tackling Social Security and Medicare and cutting taxes. It just wasn't a coalition. And in that collapse in the wake of Romney and Ryan, what do you see in 2013, just a few months later, the rise of Steve King, the far right on immigration. Immigration becomes the issue, the rejection of comprehensive immigration reform. And that fuels Trump into 2014 when I really start tracking Trump. And by the end of 2014, he's somewhat forgotten by history because he was fired. But Sam Numberg, not Roger Stone or others, Sam Numberg, this low-key Trump advisor, says to Trump, if you take Obama's outsider message, uh, bind it together with Steve King's incendiary politics on immigration, and then add in your celebrity, you could be the Republican nominee in 2016. And that Trump says, yes. And by January of 2015, he's hired Corey Lewandowski in New Hampshire, hired Chuck Laudner in Iowa. And he gives me a call and says, I've made these hires. And I said to Trump, I remember when we were talking in 2011 and you were thinking about running, you wouldn't spend a dime. Have you spent a dime? He said, I've hired them all. And when Trump puts money into something, it sometimes means he's taking it seriously. And that was really it. Those those were the themes he brought together. And it's and he's someone, as I said, when I was watching him at the Arizona speech, people forget in 1999, he runs against Pat Buchanan. The Reform Party flirts with the presidential campaign. He runs against nativism. He is someone who finds this position in 2014, 2015 by realizing where the party is going in riding the wave. And so often Trump's given credit for changing the Republican Party, but he was riding the tiger. Yeah. And and if I may, this is leads you back to the I mean, no one understands the intricacies of the of both parties and the Hill and the Congress uh, better than Robert. And he uh, gave me a tutorial. OK. On it. And right. the, yes, yes, absolutely <laughs> true. And I was out of touch and rusty. And he's in touch and well-oiled, believe me, and well-sourced and thinking about it. And you, you have, this discussion leads you back to the question of what's the job of the president? So I'm in the Oval Office the end of 2019, <clears throat> beginning my series of interviews with Trump, and sitting at the resolute desk and he's got pictures of Kim Jong-un and he's got judicial appointments and he's got, uh, you know, his, his uh, props there. And uh, so I just said, what's the job of the president? And he leans forward and says, to protect the people. Now, I think if you asked any president, uh, you know, any at any time, that's that's pretty good definition of the job of the president to protect the people, and this is the failure of Trump. 
He failed to protect the people with the democratic process, with the virus, with, I mean, he set the stage for all these lightning moments in national security, which we describe at length in the book. And so I were sitting there in the Oval Office, and there's a old grandfather clock there. And I, I just said to him, you, you know, the Republican Party was out of touch. The Democratic Party, out of touch, lost their way. And you seized history's clock. And I pointed to the clock. And he says, yes, that's exactly what I did, and I'll do it again. Of course, he did not in 2020, but he think I mean, he was so... That history's clock is from Barbara Tuckman. Yes, it is. Exactly. It's Barbara Tuckman about the old order. See, the, the old order in the Republican Party had failed and disappeared, but in the Democratic Party. You see, the Democratic Party has got this ailment also, had this ailment. It, ha- it has it right now. What's it about? What's... You know, where is the direction? Where is the leadership? And Trump came, and as Barbara Tuckman, the historian, I didn't raise it with Trump because, you know, he doesn't know these things. It's not, but intuitively, he know, I seized the clock. I seized the moment. And he got the definition of the job right. And I wanted to say, okay, if... He really believes that because it came out of his mouth just fire. You the know, Democratic like Party point is so important. I mean, in our book, it doesn't get much attention because it's the Biden component, but it really should. Biden's decision to run is he recognizes not only in his words to Ron Klain that Trump's un-American, not an American president in his view, but he sees Trump stealing the working class vote from the Democrats in a way that's quite powerful and will have have a devastating effect if the Democrats don't address it. And in our book, it's Jim Clyburn and others and Mike Donilon, guys with working class backgrounds or backgrounds in the black community who are saying, don't forget that this party, the Democratic Party, must have the working class voter, the black voter, the working class white voter, the Latino voter in their camp, and you can't take them for granted. And Biden's the candidate who's not only the counter to Trump, but will remember what the Democratic Party's coalition is really about, because Trump, especially with his anti-immigration message, is reaching right into that working class that sees immigration as the issue that has drifted them toward Trump. Which is why I am so unbelievably frustrated that Biden's immigration policy has been such a a mess. And insofar as it has sent signals, the signals are, we want more mass immigration. And in fact, we want more non-white people in the country. They even have a a quote, I have a scene from him saying that. The Biden has not separated himself from the activist wing. When I first saw the Democratic primaries and they were about making it easier for people to come into the country uh, by decriminalizing border crossing. And the only problem was how many people can get in and how easy can we make it for more and more people to come in. I thought these people have no idea. Not, they don't even have an idea what Latino voters or Latinx voters, as they call it. That's how out of touch Biden is. He actually used the term Latinx. Uh, yeah. He is programmed by the far left, the things that he is saying, which is why I, I think- I wouldn't use the word that, program. He's made a choice to be yeah. a progress. It's a choice. Yeah. 
Okay, this wasn't programmed. He's made a decision. The Amtrak riding centrist from Delaware, based on our reporting, has said from day one of his presidency, I want to be with the progressives and I want to transform this country. Take him seriously. We take Trump seriously. We take Biden seriously. He's made decisions from the start. Massive spending passes 1.9 trillion. We document in the book pushing Manchin, pushing the centrists to come along. He's doing it again with his spending plan. Sometimes Biden's almost not given enough attention. He's making dramatic decisions. And I mean, just because uh, Costa's so tuned into these people, Mike Donlan is kind of the inner Biden in the White House, has been a longtime political aide. And he's the one in the book who tells Biden, look, uh, you know, run as who you are. And if you make it up, you'll fail. You have to run at who you are. And when there's discussion of modifying the message and so forth, uh, Biden will have nothing, none of it. Donlin will have nothing, none of but it. That's, but there's a discrepancy, and people can see it, between that and what's actually happening. For example, on uh, the, the equity agenda, which Biden has, which is, in my view, uh, a program of systematic race and sex discrimination. Biden is all down with it. Uh, Biden is concerned that we weren't treating uh, migrants fairly, not how do we stop them coming in. Uh, that critical race theory as this issue that's going to be propagated, which is part of equity, all the way down through every government institution and even through public schooling, he is all in favor of it. Any disagreement is a function of being a racist. This is creating a huge reaction out there. In other words, Biden is playing directly into the hands of Trump. That's my view. And and, and I think he's making it much more likely. We're going to see it next month in the race in Virginia. Virginia is going to be fascinating. I mean, more than fascinating, it's going to be a bellwether. And if the Republican wins, if Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat who'd been the governor before, I mean, I've known McAuliffe as is Robert going back to the Clinton years. And I remember I published something in one of my books that McAuliffe did not like, but it came from McAuliffe. (laughs) And and why, you know, why did you use this? And I said, well, because it's true and it's from you. And he was so mad. He said, it's a good line, actually. He said, lose my phone number. Lose my phone number. And I thought that's actually, someday I'm going to use that to somebody uh, (laughs) who I don't want to talk to. And uh, and so he's quite angry at me. What did, you say, what, did, what did you reported that he was... Uh, something about things he'd said about Gebhardt, the congressman oh. who was running for president, and uh, they were, you know, they were harsh, and uh, politics is harsh, as we know. But, but so, McAuliffe, I watched him on uh, Morning Joe the other Day, or I guess maybe yesterday or the day before, and he's all cheery. He's all, you know, everything's great. I did a terrific job. I did this for people. I did this for women. I, you know, and, and uh, oh, I'm going to, by the way, have Obama come in, uh, First Lady Jill Biden come in. What about Biden coming to Oh, I'm campaign? sure Biden may come. 
Biden, Biden, I'm sure Biden will come. Maybe, yes, I think that's I mean, that may be the last few days of the campaign. But to build on what Bob was saying about Virginia and to your point, oh, you can't turn on Fox News, it seems, these days without seeing the Loudoun County School Board or another school board in Virginia. And there are conservative Republican parents protesting curriculum, uh, angry about issues you just detailed, Andrew. And so Virginia is going to be a bellwether, broadly speaking, but it's going to be a bellwether as well for are these issues of equity, critical race theory, are they actually activating political change in a state like Virginia? Because I have my own doubts and skepticism about whether the prism of of school board meetings shown on Fox News is representative of what's happening across the board, but maybe Virginia will be a test case. But on the point of equity, we see in our book, Biden embraces it when it comes to addressing the virus. He is with it. And take that seriously. This is someone who is not dancing around it. He's and going he right at it. A, he did a good job at the beginning uh, as we chart through that. It was very activist. It was not Trump, so uh, we don't want to panic people. Uh, Biden was panicking people and very much of an activist, uh, but the Delta variation came along uh, as, you know, something that you couldn't control. And of course, what's the you know, what is, is we talk about this endlessly, don't we, about the, the future and where we were. The, what changes the equation, the political equation in this country? And I think that traditionally it's a crisis of some sort. If you look at 9-11, the 2001 terrorist attacks, 3,000 people died, a, a giant tragedy. But that changed this country for the last two decades. Everything that happened in foreign policy and domestic policy essentially is connected to 9-11. And uh, we now have almost 2,000 people dying each day because of the virus. It's astonishing how we become accepting of certain things and totally unaccepting of other things like that terrorist attack. So is there going to be a crisis? You know, what's the state of the economy? Really, what's going on? What's going on in all of these areas? And uh, so what we get to do happily is be the, I mean, this makes you the, an old well, guy I, with me. But I think the thing we've talked about a lot is the crisis still is voting in this country, in this election system. I mean, the scene that really, I think, sticks with me now on this issue is Clyburn has Manchin over to his office. Remind people who Clyburn the is. The House said. Majority Whip, uh, the highest ranking uh, black American in Congress. Critical for Biden. Very. His endorsement yeah. of Biden lifts Biden over the top in South Carolina. Changed history. And, and Clyburn, his, his, he's in his 80s. And he sees what's happening across the country, Republicans taking over these election positions, changing election law. And he says, we need to have voting rights legislation now. Start doing something at the federal level. But to do so, we're going to need to probably break the filibuster. And he wants Senator Manchin of West Virginia, the centrist, to come along. And Manchin just keeps saying in this conversation with uh, Clyburn, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And ultimately, nothing happens. They don't break the filibuster on voting rights. And Clyburn then says privately, democracy is on fire. 
because nothing's happening. It's all happening in the states. Trump and his allies are out there. They're changing laws. They're getting elected. And what's happening in Washington? Talk, 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 talk about maybe changing something on the filibuster. And Clyburn's conclusion, and he's been around a lot. He was in the middle of the civil rights fight. Democracy is on fire. And Moore's on fire. I. Uh, and what's for, on fire, sir? Uh, uh, lots of things are on fire. I teach a journalism class, and uh, uh, one of the students one day uh, this year kind of said, uh, asked a really interesting question, does the truth matter? How does the truth matter? And uh, the truth really matters, and it's something we, as a political system, as a journalistic tradition, we need to go back on, and what's the best truth? Uh, let's work on it. It doesn't come in a 24-hour news cycle or a tweet. It takes a long time to get as close to the truth, and and that's what we owe ourselves, and we owe in the case of the Washington Post or our book, uh, the readers. And we have got to, I mean, there is, it's really hard as a journalist to acquire an emotional distance from what's going on. But the problem is, Bob, the entire journalism industry is saying no. The narratives are what matter. The narrative to change America is what we are. We want moral clarity in the words of one of the leading aspects. Well, I, I'll tell you this. I'm a, I voted Biden. I'm, I've supported even Hillary against this craziness. But I'm pretty conservative in my temperament. Uh, and this divide is cultural more than economic. And it's a function of the industry, the one culture, educated, college-educated people, as opposed to non-college-educated people. That's the divide. In that divide, it isn't so much even money. It is about culture. And what the mainstream media has done the last four or five years is lose my trust. I'm well, not the only one. I don't trust what they write anymore. I know what they're driven by. Uh, you know, when the New York Times puts a special issue of their magazine or the 1619 Project, which asserts as its core that there is no such thing as objective truth, that we're not interested in truth. We're interested in systemic change, and we will then tell a story about America that will help us. Now, that is make that change. Now, that is something that I don't trust. Okay. That's, that's a legitimate criticism, but we've, I, I mean, I'm just you know, reflecting the old guy here, I, I think we need to be cool about that. I need to be, and, and again, remedy, more reporting, more clarity, try to explain what's going on. And if your diagnosis is correct, as I recall, there are more people in this country without college degrees. If that's the divide, Trump rules. That's and, why he, and, he will. And, and, and well, I what, I, what I compare with, like in the UK, for example, we have very similar dynamics, culture, college, etc. What Boris has been able to do is take establishment conservatism, co-opt that stuff, siphon all its votes into a mainstream party and govern not massively from the right, but, but I mean, for example, he's now pouring money into hospitals, helping working class areas in the north of England. I don't see that here. Um, uh, and 
But I do see the power of this. I'm, I'm telling you, my, I, 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 my reason will make me vote. Well, it depends on who or where I, a Democrat. But my internal gut is that I want the Republicans back in. If it weren't for Trump, I want to stop these crazy people of the left that are running the government and running media and running every cultural institution. Well, that and, is, and that's for you to take a position on. But I think as a reporter who works for a, quote, mainstream organization and a reporter who, who values the idea of speaking as a reporter to all every sector of the audience, I prize integrity. And I think we got to protect that in the media as a reporter. And one of the things I've really tried to do is when I'm out there talking to voters or sources, and they say to me, on the left, your corporate media, or on the right, your fake news, I stop and I just don't engage. And I just keep reporting because I feel so often I'm being pulled into this riptide of politics where both sides want to engage me as a political actor. And that if they can engage me as a fellow political actor, then I have to start debating, being defensive. But if someone says to you, you're fake news, what's the human response usually? No, I'm not. It's defensive. It's I am not. If you say nothing, then they can't have that conversation. I just want to report. I hope there's still room in this country, and I believe there is, to just vigorously report. And I want to be the kind of reporter who if I do spend nine or 10 months digging, and I come out of this experience as a nonpartisan reporter and say this democracy is very fragile based on our reporting. And it's very serious that people just don't go, oh, that's Costa, he's fake news, or he's corporate media. They say, well, we don't really know him personally, but we know his work has integrity. We're gonna listen to what he has to say. And that to me is so critical to protect. I don't wanna get pulled into these debates so both sides can hear me out and say, well, if he's ringing the bell on this, I can trust him. I trust you. Robert, I trust both of you, actually. I don't think there's some political agenda. But when I see so many reporters for The Times and The Post and The Journal on Twitter portraying themselves as really quite far left in their politics and their agenda. Look, you can t love them or hate them, but I'm not here to engage with you oh, on that debate. Oh, no, right. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying... See, someone, needs to, someone needs to restore the credibility of this the way that you are. Now, I know the way to do that is just to do it. And yes, I can. I I learn which reporters I will try. Like you take someone like Nick Miroff at the Post, his mastery of the immigration topic, his mastery of what's happening at the border is really fantastic. Right, and he I just can, puts a mirror up to what's happening. He, he's he's absolutely straight down the line, and I trust all him. Warts and all, everything. Yeah, Show I it all. Trust him because I've also noticed when there are facts that emerge that are, are inconvenient, he will not dodge dodge them. Now you learn that over time, but of course I'm like I read the so, stuff. So like now a, what, <laughs> I'm, what? I'm a junkie. I know how to make those distinctions. Most people don't. And when they read the New York Times' front page and it's all critical theory <laughs> narratives, they just go, rah. So now what, <laughs> one of the things that's interesting in this is the psychodynamics of it. Yeah. I'm 78. He's 36. Yeah. And he sounds old and wise. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean that. And you know what he's, he's saying is we have an obligation of the traditions of journalism to pull ourselves out of that, sorry to use the expression, the swamp yeah. of taking sides, of putting a spin on it. You know, the English language is like a golf ball, you know, it rarely goes straight. 
goes left or right, and sometimes disastrously so. So, I, you know, and I am in total agreement with that. And part of that is adopting that. I'm just not going to engage because it's not a useful, and I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to go back and look at these issues, and, we, you know, we don't want uh, somebody in the Trump orbit or somebody in the FBI or the CIA or the God knows where to write a memoir in 10 years that says, here's the real story. Mm-hmm. Here's the story that all you clunkheads missed, and we deserve that, to know now. Yeah, we need. We, and we have, need to know now. That's that's the duty. But the pushback gently on Andrew's point. When I was living in the UK, growing up for a few years and for grad school, I enjoyed how, to use a phrase, a lot of the journalism over there had voice, and they were fighting a lot. And I enjoyed as a reader the fight. And so as someone who's a reporter, someone on the sidelines watching, I like seeing the tangle over ideas. And just because someone wants to give a huge spotlight to a valid issue like systemic racism and you think they're doing it too much, I want to hear that discussion. I'm open to the fight over the future of journalism. As a listener, I want to hear where it has to go. And the voices you criticize should not be silenced, and you should not be silenced. I agree. I wish I could read that fight in the pages of the Washington Post, in the pages of the New York Times, in NPR. There is no other side represented in those institutions. Uh, that's what I would say. Now, look, <laughs> I'm not going to force you into this because I don't want to, because I want you to be where you are. And I I just want to say I am I'm so impressed with your empirical obsession <laughs> and and because empiricism is a lost cause in so many ways and no, I do trust sir, you both. no it's not a lost cause and it's uh, it's a necessary cause and it um, you know I just I feel comfortable that they're uh, not necessarily an awakening but an appreciation of oh okay this is straight. I mean, not to dwell on this, but in this book, I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of people who has bought it. You know about the book business. And people talk about it, and people take sides, and they have views, and so forth. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And, uh, you know, anyone buying, you know, lots of people won't like it, but um, they will see that we're not in the fight you're talking about. And I agree with Robert that I like to watch it. I think it's important. What I find painful is people on the right and on the left will go on cable news there and say anything sometimes. And and, and it's not even close to the facts, just make assertions. And that uh, that's troubling, and that gives me hives, quite frankly. <laughs> yes. I trust you guys, to be honest with you. I've trusted you because I've read you for so long, and that's, that's not a, that's an empirical 
judgment that I'm making about the <laughs> we work appreciate you've done. It. I want to I want to tell you how grateful I am for the work you Thank do. You. I want to tell you how grateful I am for the work you're going to do. As this crisis of democracy is far from over, it may just be beginning. And Robert, Bob, it's been an absolute honor and great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your work. And I'm sure readers and listeners will have lots of thoughts and questions. Please send them to us. Send us your comments on what we've talked about. And I will, as we always do on The Dish, run dissents in the body of the place. So exactly the kind of debate that you believe in will be in the very blog that we do. Um, thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you next week. I don't know who we got next. I, I always forget who we've got next week. But anyway, we've got someone fantastic next week, but we will <laughs> never be able to really uh, match uh, Bob and Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Night.